Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Russian witch hunt. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week my guest is the co-author of a new book titled The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft and World Order. He'll be letting us know just what those lessons are and how those in the White House or those in the race for it in 2020 might apply them. First, let's have a listen to some of the ways President Trump has challenged some long-standing pillars of the US-led international order and the alliances that many have taken for granted for generations. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Uh, the decision is that in the case of Canada, Mexico, and the EU not to extend the exemptions that have been granted to the those tariffs. The idea that we are somehow a national security threat to the United States is quite frankly insulting and unacceptable. The WTO was the single worst trade deal ever NAFTA made. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. Indeed, the president has suggested potentially that we end up with a cost plus 50 scenario, i.e. the cost of stationing U.S. troops plus 50 percent. Mr. President, it's too much. No, it isn't. We have to keep winning. We have to win more. We're going to win more. Dr. Charles Edel is a former advisor to the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and was an associate professor of strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College before joining the United States Studies Centre as a senior fellow. He joins me today in his capacity as a published author and historian. Charles, welcome back to the podcast. Drew, thanks so much for having me on today. In your new book, you say that Americans have lost their sense of tragedy. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, I think what my co-author, uh, Hal, and I uh, were trying to convey in this is that Americans and American allies, for that matter, have forgotten why America does what it does. Uh, when we're talking about tragedy, we're talking about a full-scale buckling of the international order, complete with great power war, mass suffering unfolding on a global scale. And because it's been so long since that last happened, 75 years, uh, 30 years since the end of the Cold War when there was a real rivalry and a competitive mindset in place to hew America to some of those roles, the distance from those horrible events has really grown. And so some of the questions that have always been in the background, why is it that America has military equipment staged around the world and men and women in uniform around the world? Why is it that America has trading agreements and keeps its uh, economic markets open to countries that sometimes don't do that and that it comes at the expense in the short term, sometimes medium and sometimes even long term of certain American workers and industries? Why is it that Americans care about faraway places such as Ukraine or the South China Sea? Well, there are pretty good answers to almost all those questions, and they tend to be historical ones, that when America does not play that role, this was the history of the 20th century, horrible things tend to happen. But because the distance has grown from those events, because people who understood and experienced them and wanted to do 
anything possible to stave off that from happening again, the feeling, the memory seems to have faded for why America does what it does in the first place. And the irony is that this memory is fading just as the international environment is becoming more fraught. Okay, so you're talking about tragedies. What kind of tragedies are we talking about here? Because there'd be some who's listening, who are listening, who'd say, "Well, we seem to be going from tragedy to tragedy at the moment." Um, and because of the connectedness of the world as it is, I guess it's, it's hard to avoid tragedy in some ways as well. So, what kind of tragedies are you talking about? So that's a great point. And look, to to pick up the newspaper, to open your phone is to be flooded with seemingly tragic events. Yeah. Uh, and we're not discounting that, right? That there's pessimism all over the world, and you're overwhelmed by the newsfeed. But what we're making the argument for in this book is that we're talking about a different type of tragedy. We are talking about the international order buckling and great power war coming back. Um, This is a different type of magnitude of tragedy that we're talking. That's not to discount personal tragedies or societal tragedies. But we're talking the scale of violence that generally unfolds at this level is something that's quite different. And so uh, in almost every era, and we trace this through the book because it's both a historical book and a contemporary book, uh, some of the wisest observers of international offense say that the world is coming, uh, becoming more peaceful as the foundations of that order are eroding. And when it breaks down, it frequently comes more uh, quickly than most observers might anticipate, and the results are more catastrophic than they might imagine. Uh, You use ancient Greek society as a basis for your argument that uh, a tragic sensibility can help produce uh, a communal sense of responsibility. Can you unpack that a little for us? Sure. But I should uh, be honest in my approach here that in some ways the entire impetus uh, for this book was for me convincing my parents that I was a classics major and it was okay. It was worth it, mom and dad. A real historian. A a real historian, a real ancient historian. Uh, But actually, ancient Greece is a useful place to start this conversation because uh, there's a puzzle that in some ways the ancient Greeks, the ancient Athenians, have this amazing, flourishing, basically liberal and democratic, not how we would describe it today, culture. Uh, They have a navy that rules uh, the waves. They have an empire spread across the Mediterranean. They have a basically liberal system that they're very proud of and that we still look to as a model today. And yet, at the center of their civilization, they put the concept of tragedy, right? Uh, Every year, they subsidize public plays. They made all their citizens go to them. They they got drunk off of wine and they sat there for two to three days watching these performances. And if you remember anything from when you were forced to read those Greek tragedies in high school or in college, you'll remember that it was the great and the good who fell, right? Right before your eyes due to errors, due to ignorance, due to hubris. And the point was really to scare the bejesus out of themselves collectively Mm -hmm. because the Greeks thought, and this was their insight, that only by keeping tragedy in front of you, only by keeping comfort with your worst fears, might you be willing as a society to take the unnatural actions as a society collectively that might help to stave it off from happening. Is there a risk that younger people who read this book, and sorry to play devil's advocate on this one, but is there a risk that that young people who read this are thinking, oh, look, this is just the older generation telling us we've never had it so good. You know, young people have never known hardship. We need, you know, another war to teach them humility. Is is that criticism warranted? So first of all, never apologize for playing devil's advocate. (laughs) Uh, This is those of us who are in the think tank world, who are in the academic world, who are in the policy world have to be willing to take on arguments. Actually, sorry, this is a tangent. (laughs) 
I want to say my favorite word that I've discovered while I've been in Australia is contestability. Right. Right, that we are contesting ideas, we're contesting policies. So having open debate in democratic societies is exactly what we should be doing. Okay, okay glad we now, got that out of the way. Now to, now to your question, <laughs> yes. Drew. Uh, the question about wouldn't younger people say that, ah, this is just you old folks, uh, and you're saying that we need a war? And uh, my answer would be yes, guilty as charged. But isn't it better to experience a war through learning about one than through actually experiencing it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on this, uh, I think it's okay to say that the world is more stable, maybe not more stable. We can say more prosperous. Uh, people are healthier and live longer uh, than at any other time. You know, President Obama had that beautiful and famous phrase, right? If you closed your eyes and imagined any time in history where you would want to live, undoubtedly you would choose the present. Uh, I think he's correct, but that doesn't negate the fact that the international order is eroding, that underpins those conditions. So you can say both things at the same time. Finally, let me just add to that, that uh, it's a Greek insight, and I don't think this is an old fuddy-duddy one, it's just, it's the power of the classics, that it is precisely when you begin to think that tragedy is impossible, that it becomes more possible to happen. The Greeks were not fundamentally a pessimistic people. They were a hopeful optimistic people. If you look at their culture, if you look what they created, but that is in some ways because they were willing to think about how bad things could get, knowing that life had lots of dangers around it, uh, both individually and collectively, and that you would struggle in the face of that on your own and with your fellow citizens. Okay, I'm going to continue to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, the war in Afghanistan has entered its 18th year. Um, we're getting to the point where soldiers who weren't even born when the conflict began could potentially be deployed there. Surely that's a lesson in tragedy for the next generation already. Uh, yes, but not that type of tragedy. Right. Uh, so let me actually address that. So not an unbuckling of the international order. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly a tragedy for uh, soldiers who have gone to fight and for their families who have had to support them and who have even have lost loved ones. There's no argument there. The two points, though, that I would make on this is, first of all, enduring action is not the same thing as tragedy. So we can debate and we should debate the wisdom of the policies of being in Afghanistan, still being in Afghanistan, what political and military actions are being taken. But to say that we are in Afghanistan still is not a tragedy in and of itself. Uh, The second thing, though, that I would say, which I think this might tip more towards where you were going with that devil's advocate question, is when there is a perception in democratic societies that their government has either overreached or stumbled into a quagmire, the public is less willing not only to support those actions, even though some of them might be necessary, but they become less willing to support other actions where there actually are real dangers. So that's only to say uh, that Afghanistan and Iraq, we should really say when we're talking about the crisis of internationalism and American internationalism, have had effect and have had, I would argue, pernicious effect on this thinking. Let's talk about alliances for a moment because we've got some competing arguments in the book that are worth looking at. You document that some scholars argue that terminating US alliances and pulling back US troops from around the world might actually make the United States more secure, um, more prosperous and thereby influential um, internationally. That argument would worry a country like Australia, wouldn't it, given its push to keep American military powers in in areas like the the Korean Peninsula and the South China Sea? Uh, So yes, I do think that is an argument that should uh, worry uh, US allies, but it's also 
also an argument which should worry the American public. Okay. Because if something's too good to be true, it often is. Uh, so you know, yes, look, in the book, we take names. We name names and we go after what we think are useful uh, but perhaps not quite truthy uh, arguments. So two things I would say on this. First is that's a very seductive argument yeah. that if America – and this is an American argument principally – that if you just pay less costs onto the defense budget, if you pull back from being forward engaged and positioned around the world, yeah. A, it's a huge cost saving and B, the security uh, outcomes are going to be pretty good. Um, and I think in the book uh, but elsewhere as well, my uh, co-author and I argued that the cost savings are generally exaggerated. Uh, pulling America back with a military that it has playing the role that it has, it still has to be able to project power into certain regions. Yeah. Uh, projecting them into regions when you were based in Georgia, when you were based in North Dakota becomes actually more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, second, you know, if you take a look comparatively at the size of the U.S. military budget, it's high but not that high. We're talking about 4 4 4.5%. At the height of the Cold War, it was above 10%. The average was about 6%. Uh, discretionary spending in the U.S. on the military budget is 18 percent and falling. So it is high, but it is not historically nearly as high as it was even during the Cold War period. But second, that the benefits security-wise that you're likely to accrue from pulling back are often exaggerated and the costs and the risks actually rise. Because the question that's not asked by people who put that forward is if America and its allies and its like-minded democratic allies pull back, what is likely to fill the vacuum? Right. And is it likely to be more or less conducive to the values that you hold? Mm -hmm. Philip Bobbitt wrote in his review of your book uh, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that uh, those scholars that you highlight might have an unlikely ally in President Trump uh, in regards to this US retrenchment argument. Um, the president doesn't appear to be a fan of spending money on US military presence overseas despite his historical alliances. Uh, I take it you'd argue against that kind of worldview. I would indeed. Yes. Uh, I, I would <laughs> argue. Uh, you know, uh, this came out most recently, uh, I guess, in President uh, Trump's statement that he wanted allies to play, pay cost plus 50 percent yeah. right, of housing a U.S. Uh, service members and military equipment. And uh, again, I've already laid out the argument why I think this is a bad idea. It's also a bad idea because if you want to work in concert with your allies, yeah. when you are running things as if they were a protection racket, you are less likely to have the trust and willingness to move together on what I would argue are common challenges to a lot of the values that we face. What's interesting, though, is uh, when we talk about the Trump administration, it becomes tricky, mm -hmm. right? Because you have President Trump, then you have the Trump administration. Yeah. And oftentimes they're working at cross purposes. And when we talk even about the cost plus 50, uh, I would say, yes, Tr President Trump, I think, has a pretty clear and fairly consistent position on this, although I did notice he walked it back a little bit. But if you begin to look at the U.S. Congress, uh, they've made multiple assertions that they want to make sure that allies are on site. If you frankly looked at the first press conference that the new U.S. ambassador to Australia gave, yep. he was asked explicitly about this question. What do you think about cost plus 50? I went back and rewatched his comments because I wanted to think about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, no, I have no reason to believe that we're likely to think about doing that with Australia. We know that Australia pays its fair costs. 
you know, I'm not the one who makes the decisions on that, but I haven't heard any discussions that such, something like that would apply to Australia. Okay, so almost like the steel tariffs decision, right, that Australia was suddenly immune from this because they considered a good ally? Is that is that sort of the same? Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. But, you know, this is where I, I actually think that it's, it's sometimes hard and confusing to understand what it is the Trump administration is doing. Yeah. Now, part of this, if you read the formal documents of the Trump administration, the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, uh, they are moving into a competitive mindset against uh, revisionist rivals, particularly China um, and Russia and mm-hmm. Iran uh, to a certain degree as well. Uh, when you listen to President Trump, it could be confusing if he actually has read those documents or if he truly believes in them right. um, because he says things that seem to work cross purposes to them. But one of the things is if you are moving into an era of great power competition, of sustained competition, that and we've heard uh, multiple senior members of the U.S. administration make this argument, competition is not a four-letter word, right? A, a democratic, a liberal capitalist society should not be afraid of competition. It's what we do. But if you move into this era, you have to be careful where you choose to compete and that you're not undercutting yourself as you do so. So the point was made that, look, for a long time, China has pl- played unfairly, not by the rules, in the international economic order. That is an affront not to the United States, but to everyone who plays by the rules. So when you are moving to try to get China to play by the rules that they agreed to but have not lived up to, yep. swiping at your allies in the process doesn't really help that end. We've seen a dramatic reduction in funding for the U.S. State Department in recent years. Uh, if President Trump is committed to reducing U.S. military numbers or spending um, on, on military de- deployed overseas, how big a problem is it then if the diplomatic presence is, is getting weaker? Uh, it's a big and underreported problem. Okay. Uh, Because if President Trump wants to make uh, the U.S. military uh, less entrenched in overseas areas, you would think that that means that you have to have more stable regions overseas, which means you mean more diplomacy, more engagement with regional dynamics. So beginning to hollow out the core of U.S. diplomacy by underfunding the State Department actually does great harm to that. Yeah. Uh, without giving too much of the book away, what, what's the remedy here? So how do you get people to look at their history and, and prevent any breakdown in this post-war foreign policy consensus? Uh, well, look, you have clearly come to the right source because <laughs> I'm a historian. I would say read more history. Yes. Uh, but look, this is not, and I think this is important to note, this is not a policy prescriptive book. Okay. Right? Yep. This is not a here's your 14-step action plan for stepping out smartly. Uh, I think that flows from that, and there are places where we can have a very useful debate about what is the appropriate size of the U.S. and the allied military budgets. Yep. Uh, how do you push back against Chinese encroachment in the South China Sea, uh, Russian intervention into subverting democratic processes? But, and there's a big but here, useful thought has to precede constructive policy prescription. And so where we really come down in this book is this is a mindset that we have to adjust ourselves to because the warning lights are beginning to flash on the dashboard. Great power competition is back. There's an ideological component. There is more instability in multiple areas in the world than we've seen in a very long time. The democratic wave has really crested, and now we see the advance of illiberal authoritarian states working to carve out their own spheres of influence. And so if you want to get ahead from that, you have to think about what is the appropriate mindset. Because the post-Cold War era, where we thought globalization would tame the forces of competition, is over. And so some of the things that we lay out is understanding that tragedy is more the norm than the exception. Mm -hmm. 
and that it's once again stalking current events. But I think maybe the most important conclusion that we come into that we're arguing for in this book is being realistic about the situation that we find ourselves in is not the same thing as saying, and therefore, game over. Right. You have to avoid the trap of complacency without falling into a fatalistic sense about what you have the ability to do. Looking at the current uh, 2020 Democratic field of candidates, uh, can you see anyone even willing to engage on these big philosophical foreign policy issues during the campaign? Or, or is it likely we're going to have 18 months of purely domestic focus? Uh, so, so yes, uh, we're going to have a lot of turnover the next 18 months because that's what political campaigns and presidential campaigns are about. Sure. I would also say that no matter how much uh, my co-author and I hope that some of this language fundamentally works itself into the debate, uh, talking about Greek tragedy is probably not going to be at the <laughs> foremost. No, no. Although, you know, I would say, and there's a reason that we open our book with a famous moment where Bobby Kennedy, who's campaigning for the presidency uh, in 1968, uh, hears news that Martin Luther King Jr. has been assassinated yeah. on his way into an African-American community in Indianapolis. And he does something really strange. He actually begins quoting the poet Aeschylus to talk about tragedy, to talk about sorrow, to talk about collective action for how to move forward. And the striking thing about that really somewhat puzzling moment is Indianapolis is one of the very few cities that escapes upheaval after that point. And so do I think there's a place for actually talking about some of this stuff and not talking down to the voters? Absolutely, there is. Um, uh, and out of the current field of Democratic candidates, who do you think is shaping up to be the bond to beat for nomination? Uh, well, ask me again in a couple of months. <laughs> no, but I yeah. actually mean that uh, seriously. Yeah. Uh, because if I answer now, we're getting a snapshot yeah. of who has caught fire in the last couple of days, the yeah. last couple of months. Now, we know we can actually point to some of that, right? Like Pete Buttigieg, for instance, just yeah. raised $7.1 million, surprising everyone. So he seems to have caught some fire. Yeah. But the way that the democratic system works in the U.S. during a presidential primary is who actually has that momentum over the long haul? Mm -hmm. And what happens when they begin to get hit by opposition research and by each other? And who is a Teflon candidate and who actually really has staying power? So that's one thing that we can't answer that quite yet. The other thing, though, the other dynamic that I would answer this on uh, without really answering your question, Drew, is who the democratic candidate will be will be based on the debate on how you re read the outcomes of the 2018 midterms. Yeah. So if you read the outcome as progressive, younger, uh, more diverse candidates turned out the largest midterm elect uh, vote that we've seen in a generation, you're likely to gravitate towards one particular type of candidate. And there's evidence for that. But if you read the 2018 elections as the entire Midwest seemed to have flipped back blue. Uh, in Kansas, three of the four congressional seats, with the sole exception of the one white supremacist, uh, went blue. Mm -hmm. And almost all the suburbs in America went blue again. That's a very different type of candidate that you would gravitate towards. And because there's evidence for both of those outcomes, that's really what the argument's going to be about.
Uh, I'm not letting you off uh, quite that easy. I'm going to ask you at least to talk about one specific candidate, and it's looking increasingly unlikely at this stage, but it would be remiss of me not to ask you if you think your former boss, Secretary of State John Kerry, might throw his hat in the ring in 2020. Yes, he'll announce tomorrow. No, I have no clue. Uh, I I tend to think the answer is no, but one doesn't know, and this is a wide open field. The one thing, though, that I would say about a type of candidate like Kerry, and really uh, I'm talking about Biden, although they're quite different candidates, uh, you know, but another establishment figure, yep. well-known, yep. centrist, who has not yet entered the race. And big on the international stage as well. Big on the international stage, really big on the foreign policy and national security stage. Actually, the only candidate currently in the field who really has that national security chops, um, that when he enters the race, as more centrists enter the race, the conversation that we're having a month from now is going to look quite different than it does right now because the frame of the debate will be different and will be stretched in slightly different uh, directions. Charles, thanks very much for joining us today. Drew, thanks so much for having me on. If you'd like to hear more about the lessons of tragedy, statecraft and world order, which is out now, uh, you can join us for the Sydney launch of Charles's book on April 11th with the ABC's Geraldine Duke. There's more information and tickets to that event on our website, ussc.edu.au. Thanks this week to the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps, Ketzer and the Bubba Mara Brass Band for their musical contributions, and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 